Hello, and welcome back to the Lexicon podcast, where we critically engage in philosophy and correlate philosophy research to contemporary issues at an easy to understand and digestible level. My name is Sara Shavastava, and I'm your host. This week, we're joined by Dr. Travis Timmerman, an associate professor of philosophy at Seton Hall University. Hi, Professor Timmerman. How are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great, and thank you for your time and for being here today. Uh, Before we begin our discussion, I wanted to ask you, how did you get into philosophy and what stood out to you? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I didn't know what philosophy was when I was your age. And when I was a uh, freshman in college, I thought I wanted to go to law school just because some people in my family had done it. And my academic advisor said I should take a logic course to hone my analytical reasoning skills for the LSAT, the sort of standardized exam that you have to take to get into law school. Uh, So I took a logic course and really enjoyed it. Um, I mean, what stuck out to me about that was just the sort of rigor And I had always been sort of kind of an argumentative person, (laughs) but being able to formalize arguments to identify truth preserving arguments to identify fallacies that I otherwise, you know, wouldn't be privy to, that was really appealing. Uh, So then I took an intro to philosophy course just to fill an elective and that was just so much fun. It opened up a much broader world than logic did. And, uh, you know, raised some questions that I had thought about myself as a kid and then raised lots and lots of questions that I would have never, you know, even been on my radar had it not been for that class. So I took another class and another class, and another class. And by the time I was a junior, I declared a major in philosophy just because it was so much fun. So is that what like got you really excited about philosophy is like the constant questioning or is there like something else that was attractive in philosophy? It was uh, not just the constant questioning, but employing a certain kind of methodology to answer those questions. And as as well as being around people who were sort of open to having their beliefs subjected to scrutiny. Um, that was something that I appreciated. If I have some false or unjustified belief, I want someone to say, oh, I you know disagree with you and here's why, at least in typical cases, in most contexts. And I appreciated being around other people that had the same sort of interest in trying to pursue the truth and the same sort of interest in questioning their own beliefs. Um, and if you do that outside of that, sometimes it's like a faux pas and people don't like <laughs> in normal everyday conversation for you to say that you think they're wrong. Go figure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I mean, I think that's like a lot of people actually. Um, yeah. But I guess like when you were in college, did you have a specific area that you were like super duper interested in and like and in most of your research focused there and how yeah. has that evolved um, over your course of like academia? Yeah, weirdly not. I mean, I just loved every single topic that we did. I mean, I was really interested in political philosophy, but I was really interested in philosophy of mind. I took a class in philosophy of death. I was really interested in that. I loved logic. Uh, I loved history of philosophy, although a little less than the other stuff. Um, even when I was applying to graduate school in philosophy, I would apply uh, to some schools to try to write a dissertation on philosophy of mind. I'd apply to some schools to try to do a dissertation on normative ethics. I'd apply to some schools that would try to write a dissertation on death. And it just so happens that I got accepted to the school where I wanted to work with someone uh, to do philosophy of death. And like, just because of that luck, I ended up focusing on that. Uh, Cause once you get to graduate school, you really have to specialize in order to make a contribution to literature. You really have to kind of read primarily in that literature and that's going to come at, time that precludes reading other stuff um but no i really i'm someone that really likes pretty much it's it's hard to bore me with any philosophical talk with any philosophical question i'm i'm interested in it 
I mean, I think I'm definitely the same, which you can probably tell by the podcast, which has a variety of topics. Um, but today we're going to be talking about virtue ethics. Um, and I guess in some relation, it is kind of maybe related to the history of philosophy because Aristotle is one of the, the, arguably one of the best philosophers of all time. And so I wanted to talk about kind of the field of virtue ethics as a whole, um, starting with a definition of like, what is virtue ethics? And then also given that Aristotle developed virtue ethics, what are like new research um, in this field by like neo-Aristotelians neo conducting? And like, are there just applications to, um, you know, different fields um, or are they doing like new research in terms of how to actually, uh, you know, be virtuous, et cetera? Yeah, great. So let me take uh, each of these in turn. I mean, uh, it's a very philosophical question to ask for a definition. Like many uh, terms in almost any language, it's going to be vague and have sort of fuzzy boundaries. So I'm going to give a sort of general definition, but it's not going to, like it wouldn't sac uh, satisfy Socrates <laughs> uh, in the sense that it's not a precise set of necessary and uh, sufficient conditions for what counts as virtue ethics. But I mean, virtue ethics broadly construed is considered one of the main normative ethical views where normative ethics, roughly speaking, is concerned with the criteria for living a moral life. And I use that vague, fuzzy language rather than saying the criteria for right and wrong action, um, because a lot of people think that there aren't any sort of categories of rightness and wrongness. But like most people in normative ethics are sort of trying to give a principle or set of principles that'll pick out any act that is right or wrong. Um, so, Virtue ethics roughly refers to the set of normative ethical views where virtue plays a primary role in answering normative ethical questions. Right. Now that's still still kind of vague, but anything I say that's more precise, I think is just gonna rule out some stuff that people do under the banner of virtue ethics uh, because it's actually a pretty broad eclectic uh, category. Okay. Now in my own work, I'm sort of focused on uh, attacking, uh, attacking a subset of virtue ethical views, uh, specifically the virtue ethical views that aim to try to identify criteria that determine right or wrong action. And so in the, in, uh, the paper that you read about this, this is uh, sort of the target, but that's just a you know part of virtue ethics. It's actually much broader. Okay, now as for your second question, there's so much that neo-Aristotelians are doing. Um, as I'm sure you know, not all virtue ethicists are actually Aristotelian virtue ethicists. So there's lots of people that work in that tradition, but not even under the banner of Aristotle, so to speak. Uh, but those that do Neo-Aristotelian stuff, I mean, some do historical work kind of piecing together Aristotle's views about a range of subjects, trying to figure out what the historical uh, Aristotle would think. Others are sort of interested in taking the parts of his view that are good and amending it or improving it in various ways. He wasn't infallible, made lots of mistakes. There's lots of stuff that wasn't developed. Um, applying that variation of his views to issues that he didn't directly address, maybe because they couldn't have been on his radar at that time, or thinking about virtues that maybe fall outside the range that he considered. So he only, he thought there were really like nine virtues, wisdom, prudence, justice, fortitude, courage, liberality, uh, magnificence, magnanimity, and temperance, right? So there's, there's work like my colleague does, uh, Dr. Denise Vigani writes about whether patience is a virtue, so there's ways to maybe expand the categories that we think of virtues. I mean, some people think about metaphysical implications of his view, what sorts of truths ground others, um, how they fit together with other normative ethical views. That's something that I'm interested in. 
um, how the structure of Aristotle, the historical Aristotle's virtue ethics uh, differs from various contemporary Neo-Aristotelian accounts. So we can sort of pinpoint the areas where they overlap and those where they come apart. Uh, I mean, really a whole lot more too. That's just a sort of small window into the range of stuff that Neo-Aristotelians do. That's awesome. I mean, um, especially because, you know, philosophy, like that idea of virtue ethics has been around for a long time, but obviously there are certain cases that even Aristotle wouldn't have been able to predict or like talk about. Um, I guess I'm curious, um, more so like right now, at least um, on like this normative moral ethics um, and like ethical view, like this normative ethical view and um, kind of understanding if virtue ethics needs to answer every single ethical dilemma in order to be considered a normative ethical view. So like what's the bright line or what's the depth like criteria for being placed as a, a normative ethical view? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, to answer your first question, no, it doesn't need to uh, take a stance on what the correct or incorrect thing to do in every possible situation is in order to be considered a normative ethical view. I do think the extent to which uh, virtue ethics fails to do that is an extent to which it's an incomplete view. Uh, but maybe the view is necessarily incomplete. Uh, in spite of being incomplete, it can have other virtues, uh, so to speak, no pun intended. Uh, that means we should all think considered accepted over alternative views. I really think no, pretty much no view that's on offer is fully complete. They'll just sort of get closer to degrees of completeness, but they're all going to come up short in various ways. Um, so no, it doesn't have to have that to be considered a normative ethical view. Uh, what, what does it have to have to be considered a normative ethical view? That's really tricky because there's no sort of uh, consensus in the literature about what the precise necessary and sufficient conditions are. For being a normative ethical view, I would personally just say any sort of ethical view that's interested in these broad questions about how to live a moral life I would categorize that as normative ethics as opposed to more applied ethics and as opposed to meta-ethics. Um, whereas meta-ethics is interested in you know, uh, metaphysical questions related to ethics, like uh, what determines the truth of moral claims or moral epistemology might fall under that category, broadly speaking. And applied ethics is interested in like very specific first order questions like when, if ever, is abortion morally permissible? But anything that falls in between those two categories, I would be totally happy to call uh, normative ethics. So in that scenario, I guess like, cause I was just learning about this, but uh, utilitarianism where like decide, deciding between right or wrong in terms of, I guess, maximum amount of welfare or maximum amount of gain, positive gain versus negative gain, or yeah, is that like, would that also be considered a normative ethical view? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So utilitarianism is sort of a paradigmatic norm of ethical view where the utilitarian's goal is to provide a principle. And that principle will tell you for any possible action that somebody could perform, whether that action is morally permissible or impermissible or supererogatory, which is to say morally permissible going above and beyond the call of duty um, or various other categories. And as you point out, like the kind of simplest, stand, most standard form of utilitarianism says, uh, at any point in time, you're morally obligated to perform the act available to you that'll produce more net welfare than any alternative act. And that's, just, that's the simplest version of that. Um, and that's distinct from virtue ethics because virtue ethicists are not interested in giving such a precise formulation. They typically think it's impossible 
to distill the kind of criteria for right and wrong action down to such a simple formula. And to the extent that they do that, they try to give a formula that ties it to what a virtuous person would do in those uh, or similar circumstances. And then a lot of the sort of complexity of the view is going to come out in what that particular virtue ethicist thinks a virtuous person would do, what the virtues are, how they balance against one another, and so on. So in many ways, it'll be much more sort of complex or messy than a utilitarian uh, account would be. Right. I mean, I think that makes sense given the, the distinctions between the two theories. But I guess um, to kind of clarify a little bit more, what exactly does it like what exactly is a virtue and like what does it mean to be virtuous? Like you said that a virtue ethicist might identify a virtuous person to do X, Y, Z, and that might determine whether or not you do X, Y, Z. But what exactly does it mean to be virtuous and who decides that? Yeah, uh, good. So a virtue is at base sort of a positive uh, character trait, whereas character traits themselves can be positive, neutral, or negative. So it's sort of like a valence, a certain type of valenced uh, character trait. Um, JLA Garcia thinks of them as like, like complex character traits that consist of a, what he calls a mental response, uh, which could be action or could not be action. It could be things like attitudes or beliefs. Um, but that's the simple version. Rosalind Hursthouse has a more sort of precise definition that I think is really good. So I'm just going to read that and then try to illustrate by way of example. And so she thinks of virtues as dispositions that are well entrenched in its possessor, uh, something that, as we say, goes all the way down, unlike a habit, such as being a tea drinker. Uh, so to notice, expect value, feel, desire, choose, act, and react in certain characteristic ways. To possess a virtue is to be a certain sort of person with a certain complex mindset. A significant aspect of this mindset is the wholehearted acceptance of a distinctive range of considerations as reasons for action. All right, so that's a mouthful, very eloquently put. I think this captures sort of the thick concept of virtue that virtue ethicists have uh, more than sort of any other description in the literature. Uh, and, it, and it can be illustrated in this way, at least part of it can. So, you know, imagine uh, that being honest is a virtue, seems plausible, at least typically. All right. uh, and then imagine uh, two people, one who is honest simply because they judge it to be in their self-interest, not because they care about honesty as such, not because they think it's good, not because they think dishonesty is bad, not because they're concerned about the welfare of the people they might be lying to. Uh, they just judge it to be like, I'm going to get what I want if I happen to be honest in these situations. But if at any point in time, they think they could gain more by lying, they would immediately lie. Right? So that's not a virtuous person, even though they're doing something that a virtuous person would do, they're not doing it for the right sort of reason. And so what Hershouse is saying is like, if this is a virtue that you possess, it has to be this character trait where you're disposed in uh, maybe typical circumstances, standard circumstances, this is something deep about your personality, who you are that you're, you want to act honestly for its own sake because you think it's sort of the right thing to do, not because you judge it to be in your self-interest. Now as to who determines that, uh, it's, I mean, different, like part of, the, part of the literature is to trying to map out what the virtues are and how to weigh them against one another. So in one sense, like, well, anybody uh, can try to figure out what their virtues are. But nobody, unless you have a subjectivist account, would think that you're determining the virtues. They think there are just these facts about what constitute the virtues and what constitute the vices. And we have to 
in light, in spite of our finite cognitive capacities, do the best that we can to figure out what the virtues are. Sort of in the same way we might figure out truths about mathematics or truths about logic. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess just so, like to backtrack a little bit on kind of this idea of taking like a trait or something like that. And how do we assign like a moral value to that trait in order for, for example, you're giving the, uh, the example of honesty. How does one kind of assign a moral value to honesty to where it's like, I like want to do that for a morally good reason? Like, it, yeah, because to me, it seems that like, personally, I believe that honesty is, is good, morally good, but it's like an intuitive response. So is there any way where you can like train it to like, you can train to assign like moral, moral value to some sort of trait? Um, or is that like not possible? Is it always going to be something that comes naturally and intuitive to you? Yeah, excellent. So it, it's definitely not going to be something that always comes naturally uh, or intuitively to you. I mean, for some people, maybe the virtues will come more naturally than others. Um, but pretty much every virtue ethicist is going to say this is the real practical value of their normative ethical view is that what they're offering a sort of um, uh, advice about how to develop the virtue. So what, what they think you should do is you have to practice it. You have to try this over and over again in the way that you, there's often this like analogy between developing virtues and developing skills of some sort, right? So um, suppose I want to make pottery. Uh, I just pick something that I have, I have no artistic abilities uh, any attempt to make pottery would be embarrassing. I would be surpassed by the typical five-year-old in uh, the you know motor skills necessary to produce pottery. Uh, but if I wanted to be good at it, I'd have to find a good potter. I don't know if that's the right word. <laughs> I have to you know be an apprentice and have to learn what they do, I have to see what they do, and have to practice over and over and over every day. And then it would become sort of closer to secondhand nature for me. And that's how a lot of virtue ethicists think about developing virtues as well. You identify someone who is virtuous or a group of people who are virtuous. And you try to emulate them and you have to practice this over and over and over again. And then it'll become more and more natural as you do it. And this is a sort of sense of like practical action guidance that comes out of virtue ethics uh, in a way that maybe is unparalleled by other normative ethical views. Okay, awesome. That makes sense. Um, and now I kind of want to talk about your, your paper uh, that you've written alongside um, Yishai Cohen. I hope I'm pronouncing that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yishai Cohen. Okay, yeah. And so the, the paper is titled The Limits of Virtue Ethics. And in that you, you state that virtue ethics, and this is a quote, is often understood as a set of normative ethical views that are purported rivals to versions of consequentialism, deontology, contractualism, and other normal, normative ethical views. And my question here is, why is that the case? Why is it always like, why is there a need to be, uh, you know, rivals, I guess, for, for all of these views? Um, and yeah why exactly like what are kind of some of the nuances i mean obviously maybe like not an in-depth analysis but some of the top level distinctions between some of them we already covered i think consequentialism by uh by virtue of like of utilitarianism kind of but what about the other ones yeah good so i'm gonna try to not uh delve too far into it and try to make it complicated uh so let me just preface my answer with i think this the short version is they shouldn't be considered rivals because a lot of these views broadly construed are actually consistent with one another. And that's one of the things that we're trying to bring out in the paper. Whereas if you were to take a typical intro to ethics course at a university, it would be presented to you in an introductory textbook as like, these are different views that are incompatible with one another. And then as a matter of logic, they can't all be true. 
But it turns out that they're actually, the broad categories are formed so imprecisely and they emphasize different things that uh, they're going to be consistent with one another. At least some of them are. So that's one of the sort of upshots of the paper. So consequentialist views broadly say that the rightness of an action is determined by how good or bad the consequences are. So they're really interested in like what makes your acts right or wrong. And they say the better the consequences, uh, the less wrong it's going to be. And then typically you're obligated to do what's best uh, on standard views, not all of them. Uh, deontological views, that's a you know philosophical jargon, but really it's referring to the set of normative views where choices are morally required, forbidden, or permitted, and is typically described as there being requirements, uh, permissions, and things being forbidden, regardless of what the consequences are performing that act. So to take one example, Immanuel uh, Kant thought that uh, we could apply the categorical imperative to figure out whether acts were right or wrong. And the like layperson version of the categorical imperative says, an act is permissible to form if you can uh, will, if you can perform it while at the same time sort of consistently wanting everyone else to perform the same act. Uh, but here's the thing. <laughs> That's, I think, uh, totally consistent with a consequentialist view. A consequentialist view that's Kantian in nature would say the consequences in which you act in accordance with the categorical imperative are better necessarily than the ones where you fail to act in accordance with the categorical imperative. So that's the ranking. Now it's going to disagree with the sort of utilitarian about what the exact right and wrong making features of an action are, but not in virtue of the fact that like Kantians don't care about consequences and utilitarians don't care about uh, obligations or permissions. So there's already uh, a literature on this called the consequentializing literature that anyone, it gets technical quickly, but anyone that's interested in it can see uh, an article that just came out in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It's free on consequentializing by Doug Portmore that lays this out in uh, excruciating detail. Uh, okay, anyway, virtue ethicists, uh, they're not primarily concerned with trying to identify the rightness and wrongness of action. Uh, acts, they're more concerned with trying to focus on, you know, how we should live our life, what type of person we should be, this like practical action guidance about identifying someone that we see as being a good person, developing the sort of skills to, you know, embody the virtues and act in accordance with them. And that's totally consistent with the view that the rightness and wrongness of actions is determined by how good or bad the consequences are. It's totally consistent with the ontological views that say they're permissions uh, or pro prohibitions. And you can't do those under any circumstances. Okay, so I I feel like I've already made it a little too technical. Uh, so I'll stop getting into the weeds there. But the short version is I don't think they should be thought of uh, as rivals, not not in these sort of broad terms. Uh, they're really kind of doing different things, and they can be described. You know, one view and one terminology can be described without loss of content in the terminology of a different sort of view. And they're really at bottom fundamental disagreements are about uh, how to weigh sorts of various goods, what morally relevant considerations are in a situation. So there will be disagreement there. I don't, I don't wanna say that there's no disagreement between normative ethicists, but it's just not going to be at the level of whether it's a consequentialist view or a virtue ethical view or a deontological view. Those categories sort of obfuscate the debate if we think that um, working within one of those fields precludes working within the other field, if that makes sense.
So in that case, what's the alternative? So if like maybe like the current debate is like kind of categorizing these different ethical views or normative normative ethical views, then what's the alternative? And, and I don't know if this is like presented in the paper or like or in the chapter, but what exactly do you guys propose in terms of how to like look forward with all of these four or like these these other normative views? Yeah, that's good. We don't actually talk about that in the chapter. Just space limitations meant there was only so much we could do. So we sort of gave the negative argument against virtue ethics and stopped there. Uh, but what's the alternative? Well, I think the alternative is to um, think about more precise questions that fall under the banner of normative ethics and then ask what fully worked out views say about these more precise questions. So for instance, one precise question um, might be, do acts have a deontic status? Which is to say, are they acts morally permissible or impermissible or supererogatory or subterogatory? Do these categories apply to them? Uh, and if so, what determines, what are the fundamental things that determine which categories actions fall under, right? And then you'll have some Kantian views giving different answers to some utilitarian views and some virtue ethicists giving different answers to both Kantians and utilitarians. And that, really hones in on the disagreement between people that are working in literature and then focus on resolving that disagreement. I think that that is roughly the way forward. And that's just one example of a more precise question we could ask, could give a list of like a few dozen ones uh, that are really gonna pinpoint the crux of the disagreement between the people that work in these different camps. And once we can pinpoint the crux of the disagreement, then we can work towards resolving it. And we can also sort of see where there's not a disagreement and where there's overlap between various views. And I think when we do that, we make moral progress. Right, that makes sense, especially with like collaboration, obviously being a big, big progress, like, or making a lot of progress. But I guess um, for the common layman uh, or anyone kind of like maybe subconsciously using some of these normative ethical views without really knowing what they are, how exactly does talking about the theoretical and bashing out the theoretical um, through debates or whatever really it is, like trying to merge them or whatever, um, how does that like impact um, decision-making or kind of going through ethical dilemmas and figuring out what the proper solution is or cases or, you know, common actions that you do in every day. Like, for example, when I was like, if I'm, if I'm driving back from school and I'm deciding whether or not to let another person go uh, or like get out so that, you know, so I can go because it's very trafficy, <laughs> but like, that's an ethical question sometimes because it depends on like, a lot of different factors, I guess, and who's driving, et cetera. There's a, a whole bunch of different situational factors there. But how can, you know, the layman kind of take all of this in and use it maybe um, in their daily lives? Or is there even like a practical question that this is trying to solve? Yeah, I think there is a practical question. And then what individuals should do is going to be highly context sensitive, which is to say it's going to depend on various things, such as how much time they have to dedicate to this, what sorts of other commitments they have, what sorts of choices they face in their everyday life. Uh, the more high stakes the situation, the more time maybe they should dedicate to trying to resolve the disagreement. The less high stakes the situation, uh, the more likely different views are to agree and they might not need to do it. Um, even though I'm criticizing, in, in a sense, I'm sort of, in a sense, I'm criticizing virtue ethics uh, in the paper that I uh, co-authored with Ishai, uh, I really think that they, offer a great deal of practical guidance about how to live. I mean, I really think there's a lot to this general methodology for the typical person to try to identify others that they think are good people and emulate them, but not to do so blindly, 
but to try to think about what it is about that individual that they think is morally good and subject those sort of thoughts to scrutiny, right? And then try to live in accordance with that. I also think, and this is not maybe really popular among ethicists, but I also think it's worth um, asking advice from people who study ethics uh, professionally. So if I'm interested in the ethics of um, AI programming for uh, drive, uh, self-driving cars, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I don't know that people who do work in that subfield know about. So if I wanted to know the correct answer to that, I would go consult them. If I were starting, if I were investing in a company of self-driving cars, I would hire philosophers to do that. Um, I work for what's called an effective altruist organization on, on the side, um, doing some advising for them. And there are people are donating money and they need to know how to compare the welfare of various types of non-human animals to figure out what's the most important. And they didn't just go with their gut reaction. They said, this is a complicated philosophical question. We should hire philosophers that specialize in animal welfare uh, to walk us through the steps, walk us through the reasoning, give us the arguments for different positions and, and sort of teach us what we should think about this, uh, which I think is broadly in line with this virtue ethical project. So, I mean, that's sort of a wishy-washy thing to say, but, I, I, but broadly speaking, I think the typical person should follow what the virtue ethicist says about how to live a good life, uh, sort of adjusting for their own particular situation with respect to how much time and energy they have to dedicate to that. So in a way, is it almost like kind of experience space as well, right? Like we were talking earlier about the ways in which like consequentialist, um, you know, decisions, that's like, I think almost a lot of actions in our day can be reduced down to some sort of consequentialist framework, but like th those things in combination with virtue ethicists, uh, kind of like sayings and stuff like that and how to like build a better sense. Um, so like, I guess this is not really a question, but what, what I'm trying to like say here is, or like ask about is the intersection between these two, right? So to me, it seems that virtue ethics is more about building the self and building how to how to have a good life. Whereas consequentialism is almost framed as, or like as almost interpreted as a way of like actions uh, and how actions are decided, right? So how exactly does that kind of distinction work where it's like virtue ethics is almost on like working on yourself and emulating these different things that you want to see in your, your own life. And consequentialism is like decisions that happened in split seconds or, you know, decisions that happened, for example, like college, uh, choosing what college to attend. That's a very consequentialist decision, right? Mm -hmm. So how is there kind of like synergy between these two frameworks um, in terms of daily actions, in terms of becoming a better person? Is it just, oh, let's, let's, let's refer to virtue ethics when we want to get better and let's refer to consequentialism when we want to make split second decisions or something like that? Or is there like a need to combine these two uh, to figure out what you want to do? Yeah, I mean, I think in a sense, there is a need to combine them in uh, a bit more of a complex way. Um, the standard utilitarian, which is a consequential, will have a view about what you should do when you have to make split second decisions, right? So the utilitarian is trying to offer, it's called a criterion of right. They're trying to offer a formula that'll tell you for any possible action you can perform in any possible circumstance, anything. Here's what determines whether that action is right or wrong. And a practical uh, issue with that uh, is we often don't know how to 
uh, rank the outcomes of different actions because we don't know what the consequences are going to be. And the consequential says, well, yes, of course, we're ignorant about these facts. So what we have to do is maximize expected utility. We're maximizing expected utility. We look at relative to our evidence, uh, the options available to us. And then relative to our evidence, how good or bad the outcomes would be. And relative to our evidence, how probable those outcomes would be if we were to perform the acting question. And then we try to give a sort of rough calculation to figure out what would be best. But sometimes we'll go wrong. And the consequentialists will say, well, that'll happen all the time, really, because we're so imperfect. Doesn't mean you're blameworthy. Doesn't mean you could have done better. That's just sort of an unfortunate fact about there being this huge gap <laughs> between our, what the normatively relevant facts are, what matters morally, and the ones that we actually are able and in a position to know. Uh, now, I, other consequentialists might not say this. I mean, I'm sort of partial to a consequentialist view, utilitarian-like, but not, not utilitarian for some technical reasons. Um, I'm partial to saying the uh, moral methodology of developing virtues that the virtue ethicists lay out is a um, valuable one to pursue. And that can totally be pursued consistently and in conjunction with adopting a consequentialist criterion of right action. Um, and there's lots of ways to work out the details of that, and it will be pretty complicated, but I do think that can be done, and I think that's the best way to go. Okay, that makes sense. And I guess, is this what you were talking about when you say that there's like limits to virtue ethics? What was kind of like, what, what are the limits in virtue ethics um, that you were describing in the paper? Yeah, well, so, there's a couple of different things that we want to say uh, in the paper, and here's the like broadest and quickest overview of that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, virtue ethics will often be contrasted with these other normative ethical views as if it's a competitor to them. But it's not worked out in enough detail to actually be inconsistent with, to actually be inconsistent with uh, the set of all consequentialist views are uh, all uh, deontological views are all contractualist views. It'll be inconsistent with some of them, but there'll also be some consequentialist views that virtue ethics is completely consistent with. So it's not, so one thing that we want to say in the paper is it's not a like one or the other sort of thing. But the limit uh, referred to uh, this idea that virtue ethics is offering a importantly distinct way to identify the criteria of right action. Right? So they'll often say, well, we have an answer as to what you should do. Uh, we'll give a formula like the utilitarian well. Uh, but to, here's one that like Rosalind Hershouse gives. An action is right if and only if it's what a virtuous person would do, you know, acting in character in those circumstances. That's just sort of a rough kind of quick version of it. Right? But that doesn't really answer the question. Uh, there's a question we can ask that parallels what was asked in the Euthyphro dialogue which is why is there this connection between right action and what a virtuous agent does? Is the fact that a virtuous agent does it, does that make it right? If so, then you have a sort of distinctive view here, but it seems very implausible. I would think not causing gratuitous suffering is the right thing to do because gratuitous suffering is bad, not because a virtue, a virtuous person would not cause gratuitous suffering. But on the other hand, if you say, no, no, the, uh, the facts about what's good or bad, uh, and what's right or wrong, and what's virtuous and vicious, those are explanatorily prior to the virtuous agent's actions. In other words, the virtuous agent recognizes these facts and acts in accordance. If they say that, then they're not saying anything different that requires appealing to a virtuous agent. 
we can just do away with talking the virtuous agent and say the exact same thing about ethics by just talking about whatever facts motivated the virtuous agent to behave the way that they did. And so then thought is it's not, if you do that, we can talk in this language if we want to, but it's not really fundamentally a different view than a consequential analog that gives the same sort of moral verdicts. Okay, so basically um, like a, a push for like decompartmentalizing, I guess all of these, or decategorizing all of these normative ethical views, but then also kind of identifying how virtue ethics uh, in some scenarios uh, may not be the best approach, i.e. like this gratuitous suffering argument or like p example um, about how like looking to a virtuous person to identify that gratuitous suffering is bad. It's probably not the best way to handle that situation, right? Well, I wouldn't say it's not the best approach. It's just not fundamentally different when it comes okay. to identifying what right and wrong actions is. Whereas virtue ethics think that they're doing something fundamentally different than other people are when they're trying but to but identify. How is, that, how is that not different if you're, like, if you're giving your judgment based off of another person's judgment that you've identified to be great or virtuous? Yeah. Well, because a utilitarian could say, well, you should also like, the, the thing that determines what's right or wrong is whether an action maximizes utility. You yeah. want to figure out how to be a good person, go find a virtuous person and emulate them. And the virtuous person is someone that's disposed to maximize mm -hmm. utility. So they can, they can say that they can sort of parody that language and say the same thing. Or Kantian can say, well, the virtuous person is one that acts in accordance with the categorical imperative often. That's in their nature. So you should go find someone that's you know prone to performing acts that they can at the same time will is universal laws and you should try to emulate them and figure out how they get motivated to do the right thing for the right reason. So uh, like I take what the virtue ethicist is saying as a good sort of like practical guidance for how to build moral character, but that's totally consistent with what other people in the norm of ethics literature are doing. They can all, they can all adopt that. Now that's not to say virtue ethicists don't have unique insights, you know, that they haven't given some really important practical guidance about how to do that, that other people haven't. They certainly, they certainly have, but it's just not a fundamentally different view in the sense that it's like not different in kind uh, than these other ethical views are. One, one last quick thing about this is part of the limit of what we say in the paper is that virtue ethicists often list a few uh, different virtues. Some would adopt the unity of virtue, some list uh, more. Uh, sometimes the lists get very long and there's derivative and non-derivative ones and so forth. But then, when we're trying to decide how to act, we're gonna face choices that are, uh, to use the term in the literature, eritically mixed. So some actions will display some virtues and others will display different virtues. And then I have to know, how do I adjudicate between those? I know this one might show courage and temperance and this one might show you know, patience and benevolence and like, now what should I do? And virtue ethics in, is just not spelled out in enough detail to answer that question. So I wanna say there, it falls very short in terms of being able to give you guidance about how to live in a way that say utilitarianism does not. Utilitarian says, well, here's a way to adjudicate, find the one that maximizes utility. And if they're both equally good with each other and better than alternatives, then you can pick either one. And there's nothing like that in virtue ethics. And uh, so that's, that's an area where it's really, really sort of underdeveloped, really sort of incapable of guiding our action in any sort of difficult to navigate moral scenario. Right. That makes sense. It's almost like 
taking a module modular look at each of the virtues or you have to take a module look at each of the virtues to kind of assign which one has the most weightage on a specific case which i don't think is spilled out anywhere um right. like for all of virtues especially because there's more research every day on what is a virtue and what isn't so that makes a lot of sense in how there can be limits there um and shortages there but i think the main idea about how like decompartmentalizing all of these normative ethical views is probably a good good idea in terms of how all of them are very similar um, and not really distinct. Um, and I think the example you gave in the earlier about how like, you know, when you open the textbook, they're like shown as if they're like mutually exclusive, which they really aren't. Um, so that's like really awesome to, to hear about how like that, how you can almost like combine these. But I wanted to ask you now, um, move away kind of from the virtue ethics but, and ask you about what you're doing now. Um, for any audience members who might want to, you know, like read it, read read some of your research, uh, which I'll put your link uh, to your website in the description. Um, but what is your research focused on now? Yeah, so I this this stuff on virtue ethics was sort of a one-off project that took me like four or five years, and I'm working now on things that I have been doing for the last decade. So uh, I'm working on a book uh, about the philosophy of death, and. I'm interested in various questions in the book and each chapter is gonna be dedicated to like one question. So, I mean, one question I uh, have is whether lives that contain, you know, infinite amount of goodness, but different finite amount of badness are equally good for you. So that's really abstract, but imagine uh, I'm faced with two choices. One, I could die and go to heaven now. Uh, and the other, I could be tortured for 10,000 years and then go to heaven. Uh, where suppose in heaven, I'm just get goodness eternally. Uh, most people think that the life where you're tortured first and then go to heaven is worse for you uh, than the life in which you get heaven right away, even though both contain the same quantity of infinite goodness. And I want to argue that actually those lives would be equally good for you, even though they contain different amounts of finite badness. Uh, I'm interested in whether we should want to live forever. There's some people in the philosophy of death literature uh, that think immortality would be ne necessarily bad for creatures like us because we'd either get bored and not want to live uh, anymore, or we would change so radically to stay entertained that we couldn't recognize our future selves in the way that we should care about. Uh, I'm interested in whether death would be bad for us if it results in us ceasing to exist forever, and uh, sorts of puzzles that arise if you say yes to that. So I, I do want to argue that yes, it would be bad for us insofar as it prevents us from getting additional good things. Uh, but that raises puzzles that even the ancient Greeks, you know, uh, thought about. So uh, the so-called asymmetry problem says we, you know, a lot of us sort of panic or are concerned with, I think it's bad for us to cease to exist after we die. But none of us existed before we were born. Or I mean, maybe before we were born, but definitely not before we were conceived, right? Uh, but no one is up at night worrying about that or panicking about having not existed for a very long time. Uh, and there's this question about why we have these asymmetrical attitudes towards each type of non-existence. So I want to answer that. I'm interested in how we should feel about death if it's bad for us. Um, so that's what that book's on. I'm also working on a collaborative interdisciplinary project about animal welfare and puzzles that arise when we try to compare the welfare of different types of non-human animals that are physiologically quite distinct. And you should think that those physiological differences are gonna result in mental differences as well. So there's a question about like what the best and worst possible life is that various non-human animals can live and how we compare the importance of that, uh, not only to other non-human animals, but to humans as well. So that's what that book's on. 
And then lastly, I'm interested in some uh, very esoteric stuff in the normative ethics literature called the actuals and possibles in debate. And the actuals and possibles in debate put abstractly is about the relationship between our free choices and our moral obligations. But the non-abstract way to put it is to just give a case that was first given by Holly Smith in the uh, literature in the 1970s. All right, so suppose Professor Procrastinate has been invited to write a book review. And suppose that the best thing that she can do is accept the invitation to write the review and then write it on time. However, Professor Procrastinate procrastinates. So if she accepts the invitation, she will freely decide to not do it on time. And that would be the worst possible outcome. Uh, but the second best thing she could do is to just decline the invitation. So what that debate is concerned with, roughly construed, is uh, given the fact that she would freely decline to write the review if she accepts the invitation, should she accept or decline? And actualists say she should decline because what would actually happen if she declines is morally better than what would actually happen if she accepts. Better to decline than to accept and not do it. Whereas possibleists say, no, 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 she's obligated to accept because it's part of the best thing that she can do over the course of her life, namely accept the invitation and then write the review. The fact that she's disposed to do wrong doesn't prevent her from incurring this obligation. All right, so that it gets that debate gets very, very technical and very tricky and it's very dry, uh, but I find it immensely interesting and I'm, I'm working on some papers related to that as well. That's awesome. I mean, there's like a, there's a, an abundance of research there, um, especially, I mean, like, I think hundred percent, that's a very technical thing or uh, like the last kind of ex explanatory or like research that you're, you're focusing on. But, you know, this, the philosophy of death sounds really, really interesting um, in terms of asking so many kind of ethical questions that like almost like come up in daily, daily thought or maybe not daily thought, but they'll come yeah. up sometime. Um, and just kind of working through those questions seems really, really intriguing. So I'll leave a link down in the description uh, to your website um, and, and, and maybe your field papers as well, if I'm able to um, with, you know, th there's going to be the research there, obviously. Um, but that about wraps up our discussion today. Thanks so much um, for all of the, the you know, discussion on virtue ethics and talking about what your research is focusing on now. I mean, I learned a lot and I'm sure our audience did as well. Good. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. I can say really quickly, I think all of the papers are available for free if they go to my website or Field Papers tab. But if anyone can't access one ever, don't pay for it. Email me. I'm happy to send you a copy. Uh, my email is on my website, my contact information is on there. So anyone should feel free to reach out. Uh, and this is really cool that you're doing this podcast. Thank you so much for having me on.